Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Once called the poster boy for zero waste living by the New York Times, Yost Bakker has been making things using waste and discarded items in a career spanning 25 years. His work has been diverse and includes art installations, doing floristry and event design for some of Australia's best bars, restaurants and catering companies, and designing and constructing a number of houses. He is probably best known for his series of zero-waste restaurants, Greenhouse, Silo and Brothel. Most recently, he presented a concept called Future Food System at Federation Square in Melbourne. It's a self-sufficient, zero-waste, productive house that demonstrates the potential of our homes to provide shelter, produce food and generate energy. Yoast is prolific and endlessly creative. He sees the world through the lens of an artist and is able to make connections and see through the nonsense in a way that is quite unique. It was fascinating and inspiring chatting to Yoast, who sees so much hope and possibility in the world. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hey Yoast, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so my name is Yoast Bakker and I'm an artist based in Melbourne. Have lived here since I migrated from the Netherlands in uh, 1982, and I'm someone that's obsessed with the idea of zero waste, and I love building um, practical, living, breathing examples of my ideas, my philosophy. I'd like to touch on your early life and how you um, became interested in art. So I've I've heard that you had some encouragement um, as a youngster to pursue art through drawing and painting, and that artistic approach to your work seems to be a critical part of what you do still. And I've heard you say recently that you don't really have a business, but you are an artist that people can commission to do things. So what impact did that artistic learning at a young age have on you? And what is it about viewing the world through the lens of an artist that works so well for you? Yeah, so I was in grade one when my teacher, Yuf Els, said to my mum, I think you should um, get Yost to spend some time with a local artist. He um, He's quite creative. And that my mum approached a local landscape painter called Jan Hollebedach, in uh, who lived in the same village as us. And he agreed to have me every Wednesday afternoon. So from the age of five till nine, I spent Wednesday afternoons with him. And for me, it was... Uh, starting with charcoal and sketching and uh, all those different things and then uh, learning how to do watercolour. But most importantly, it really was um, seeing the world around me differently, you know, the way the light would change throughout the years, the way that the wind would prune a tree or the way that, um, especially in the Netherlands where we, you know, where I grew up, that was sea, you know, so that's that's really, um, that didn't exist. 400 years ago so he was big on on showing the human influence on landscape and I think that that had a really uh, big effect on me because it made me realize that humans can uh, beneficially change the environment and not just negatively. Another part of your work that seems you know that you've already touched on that seems really central to what you do is is that idea that that waste um, the waste has value. So it, it seems to me, an outside observer, that you love to create experiences for people that help them to flip their perspective on waste and discarded things, you know, whether that's kitchen compost or coffee grounds or urine or jam jars. So I'm wondering, what is it about showing people that waste has value that's so appealing to you and why are you so reluctant to throw things out? 
Well, I just some people, um, like I just had it happen to me today that someone said, I really love the way you think. And it's like, well, I actually think that the way society does things is, I don't think that the way that I think is actually that radical or unusual. I think that the way society goes about doing things is really just crazy. It just doesn't make any sense on any practical level or logical level. You know, the fact that we use, have a single use, a single use for so many of the things that we um, use today, that to me is just complete madness. And it's only a very short period of time in human history. You know, if you think about the, you know, the two and a half million years that we've evolved, you know, that idea that we generate so much waste is just a, in the last few seconds of the time that we've been on earth. And we are the only species on earth that generates waste. There is no other species that generates waste. So for me, it's just doesn't make any sense. So when I see, and, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of art and there's a lot of things made out of waste to try and make people, I suppose, appreciate the waste that exists. But for me, that's not really the solution uh, or downcycling, I suppose you could call it, or, you know, our glass bottles going into road base is just one of those, you know, really ridiculous things or, like what the Europeans do is burn the rubbish and create energy, which is such a poor, you know, um, use of that resource. In nature, it doesn't work that way. You know, everything is a resource. And that's if I think that if we change our perspective, all of us change our perspective, whether it's business or us individually, I think we can completely turn this around. And I think so many of the issues that we face are as a result of the system that we have. You know, our food system is the most destructive thing on earth, but it's so destructive because we mine, you know, the soils for minerals to put back in and we use gas to create synthetic fertilizer and, you know, we clear land and, and you know, to basically take land away from having an opportunity to be habitat, to be a monocrop and, and um this doesn't need to be that way. You know, we generate waste that can solve. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do any of that. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of what my work is about, I suppose. It doesn't really mat- matter whether you're talking about clothing waste or, you know, we, I just think that we humans do these silly things to the materials that we use and don't think about the end of life. And I think if we design in reverse, we could solve most of that stuff. In certain parts of the community, it seems that people are becoming more aware um, and engaged in reducing waste. And people are buying food and other products um, in bulk without packaging. They're much more conscious of how they dispose of household waste. And there's local brands and businesses popping up, like a couple of the brands I've had on the show, which are ABCH, who are a circular fashion brand, and slow fashion brand Kauai. Um, and those those brands are helping people make better choices about the products that they purchase and, and what what they do with them afterwards and all, all that stuff seems positive but other parts of the community seem like there's just so much further to go um, and I recently became particularly aware of this when I moved suburbs into a short-term rental apartment and the difference in approach to waste both by the by the residents and in terms of the design of the waste systems and and also the collection of of waste by that particular council was leading to like some really poor outcomes so I'm just wondering where you think we are as a whole community on the mission to be waste-free and how we bring more people on the journey? Well, I, I, I understand your sentiment and I, I, I agree with that. But if you look over the last 20 years, there is a massive shift. That, that There's a huge shift, actually. If you think about the amount of people that 
now care and are now doing things. It could be Levi's, you know, developing a, a denim jean out of out of 100% recycled denim and then coming out and saying that by 2025, all denim made by Levi's will be made from from repurposed material. With you know that that in itself, people don't realize what implication that has. You know, it's it's forty percent of uh, the U.S. water is used just to grow cotton. You know, if we can start turning our clothing into a recyclable, reusable material, and that's just one element, obviously. But I think that almost every element is being considered. And I know some of the biggest companies in the world are starting to, you know, BMW is about to launch the world's first 100% recyclable car. Um, and so it shows that everybody is now thinking about circular economy. And so I'm incredibly optimistic uh, at the moment, especially it, what I've seen in the last three years, especially, is a, a, a shift, a radical shift that's. Uh, really now becoming almost mainstream and that's something that even six seven years ago i would never have predicted and um yeah i think we're headed for one of the most exciting times in human history because i think that there's an appetite and a demand by consumers to do things differently and because of that i think that there's a universal appeal and you know there's a lot of concern around energy and about um mining you know it's like I don't know. It's a bit like uh, people in New York being worried about, you know, horseshoes when the first cars came in. You know, energy is no longer, in my mind, an issue because we already often have surplus energy. Um, with surplus energy comes, you know, if you think about the house that I'm that I'm recording this from, that was built in. I built this in 2006, and we were the 60. We were in the 64,000 houses in Australia that had solar. That's 2006 is not that long ago. And, you know, it cost us like $40,000 to, to put, you know, a system on here. Today we're over 3 million houses and that doesn't take into account all of the, um, you know, the, the, the commercial buildings. And so we, we and, and at the same time we are radically reducing the amount of energy that we're using just through the install of heat pumps and, other technolo technology, the fact that we turn our phones on to check an email and not a computer and, you know, with a hard drive that takes a huge amount of energy. And I think that from that point of view, we've only scratched the surface. So I'm in incredibly excited about what's next. And I think that, that the energy surplus scenario will mean that we can, you know, do so many other things, grow food in our urban location and, and take pressure off our existing, you know, um, farmland and rewild and it will open up opportunities that we haven't even thought about. And um, the generations that are coming through schools, I do a lot of talks at schools and, you know, it's really clear to me that the generations that are coming through want change, demand change and are expecting it and will and we'll implement it. So for me, I think we're headed for, yeah, a really exciting transitional time there is quite a, a bit of information and awareness around your work over the last 25 years or so you know and you've worked across a number of industries with the various restaurants such as greenhouse silo and brothel you've worked in house design and construction um with the straw bale houses that you've designed and built which i assume your, your place in monbolk is one of those yep yep awesome and you've also you know there's, there's a host of things that you've done um one of the things that there's less information about, or at least I, I struggled to find, is just how some of your work life 
ideas have translated into your home life. So I'd be very keen to to hear about what you do at home to live waste free, and perhaps even some of the things that you do um, that that might, people might be less aware of and surprised by. Well, I mean, my home is really testing bed for ideas so almost everything sometimes i rip half my house down and try something new like there might be a new skin on the outside of the building because i've come up with a new idea or so this place in mombok is really just like the testing ground for both recipes in the greenhouse restaurant um or silo or brothel or whatever it is so you know we do i think water is one of the you know it's obviously the most important element i think sunshine is by far the most important element so this house is designed to capture natural sunlight it's very easy to be bathed in sun in this in this building because i've designed it that way but we also harvest rainwater and that's what we use for everything from bathing showering to cooking fermenting um i think that's really important that you have a clean source of uncontaminated water the other thing i do is just little things like um you know, I, I brush my teeth with salt. I So, you know, over the last however many 10 years, if you think about the amount of toothpaste I haven't needed to buy, um, I use Aleppo soap for washing my hair, for washing my for washing everything basically. So it means that I don't need to buy bottles of crap. Um, yeah, it's Aleppo soap is expensive. It's been made in Aleppo for about 6,000 years. It's regarded as the world's first soap. But I can't imagine my life without it. it it's a, a really long-lasting, incredible product, which means that I don't generate any waste of that. For breakfast every morning, I roll oats. Um, I buy 10 kilo bags of groats, mason groats. comes in a calico bag. Um, that in itself, you think about like the four, 5,000 boxes of cereal that that has avoided in the, you know a period of 10 years. Uh, we've got our own chicken, so a lot of our food waste that we have left over that is no longer right goes to the chicken, so we generate our own eggs, um, obviously grow a lot of food. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fermenting and pickling and, um, yeah, I uh, generate a lot of my own energy, um, which is surprising oh, yeah. how much how easy that is, and I found it really quite um, – I couldn't understand why it took so long. To, I, I could understand it was quite expensive, but, I mean – you know, we'll buy a million new cars in Australia every year and people are quite happy to buy an 80000 or $100,000 car that is worth 60000 in 12 months <laughs> yes. and 40000 in two years. Yeah. But there's all this debate about how it's not viable to put batteries or solar on, you know, the and I find that argument just so hilarious, really. Um, what else? You know, like we don't use chemicals. We, um, you know, my house is, is made with materials that are natural and non-toxic. Um, um, you know, we eat organic um, food. Uh, just trying to think of all the other things. One one big question I had: beer and wine and spirits. How how do you deal with the? Um, yeah, how, how do you how do you get that stuff in bulk, or do you just just yeah, deal so with? Yeah, so that's one thing bulk? that we do generate. Obviously, we buy beer. I drink uh, Mountain Goat Steam Ale, organic beer, <laughs> okay. made right. in Melbourne. It's right. my favorite beer. I'm a, again yeah. obsessed with um, supporting organic farmers and uh yeah that's made with organic ingredients and then yeah i've got obviously lots of friends that are local winemakers and we drink a lot of uh wine um but you know to give you an example for milk we get 15 bottles of one liter milk from yarra valley dairy tiny little dairy farm so i don't know what does that work out to um if you think about 10 years of um so you know we we it's a really 
interesting system, right? You drop the clean bottles back off. Sure. Yeah. yeah. If your no, bottle's not enough. clean enough, it's back in the fridge empty and you've still got to pay for it. So huh. there's a really good incentive to make sure that you clean the bottles properly. But if you look at like um, the amount of bottles times 10 years, it's 7,800 bottles of milk that I didn't need to go to the supermarket and buy and we didn't need to manufacture and we didn't need to, you know, like it's pretty clear that those bottles are not getting recycled. You know, it's um, uh, uh, food-coated uh, plastics are a, an absolute fucking nightmare and uh, anyone that tells you otherwise. So they get usually downcycled into park benches and decking and which to me, that's not recycling, that's downcycling, you know. And and yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, at Silo, we that was one of the things that I did at Silo. We had no glass wine bottles. We had no glass beers. So we had wine on tap. We had two reds, two whites every week on tap in kegs. We had milk in kegs. That system is now ubiquitous and it's even um, in McDonald's stores, which is fantastic. Um, mineral water came from Hepburn Springs in a stainless steel keg and, you know, we made our own tonic and we made our own cola. And, um, again, you know, the, the amount of glass that is, um, getting, you know, it's not getting recycled in Australia. We don't really separate the colors. So most of it's regarded as contaminated glass and, and, um, it's a very, I, I still can't quite understand why glass is considered to be a sustainable packaging material, because as in my opinion, if it's not being recycled, it's not sustainable and being used for road base is far from sustainable so in europe you know green brown clear glass is all sure. is all yeah. Um, yeah. separated which allows for them to recycle the product um so i i still can't quite get my head around how we consider glass to be a sustainable material because you know as long as it's not being recycled into the same material it's a real issue and then you know, that whole idea, we to, to use a glass bottle, crush it, and then make it again, the energy that goes into that, like we really should be, in my opinion, for wine and beer and soft drinks, reusing that bottle. You know, we could be reusing that bottle 50 times before it actually ultimately is damaged enough and scratched enough to be, um, you know, recycled. Hang on, we've got a... Sammy's turned up, my cow. <laughs> Sammy. Hello. Hey, Sammy. How old is Sammy? Uh, about six months. Yeah. Okay, so I got him from the dairy farm where um, where we get our milk from. Yeah. When I was in Argentina, I noticed that they have a system like that for, for beer where you can choose when you're at the supermarket, you can choose to get the um, recyclable glass that just goes straight back to the supermarket and yep. gets refilled or you can choose to get the, the other glass or the plastic. Um and the the second glass or the plastic that isn't recycled is is more expensive, and it always seemed like a really really cool system. Yeah, I mean, in in Holland, you know, it's been like that for. It actually used to be like that in Australia. Most yeah. people don't realise, but Australia actually pioneered a lot of this stuff. And sixties, um, seventies, you know, you got crates of fifties, sixties, seventies. You know, you got crates of beer, and you returned the bottles, and they got washed and they got reused. Um, you know, from a company's perspective, it's a nightmare because you've got to deal with, you know, packaging, you've got to clean it, da 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 But in Europe, they still do it. In Germany, they do it. I mean, everybody pretty much uses the same style of beer bottle and all that's different on there is a label and they use it purely as a vessel. Um, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of um, great ideas like return to marketplace. Uh, I know that there's a lot of talk around setting up washing plants. You know, it, m- most people use the same jar to make 
merit of feta cheese or hummus or it's an Australian made, Victorian made jar, why not wash it and reuse it? You know, so I think there's some really exciting stuff on the horizon around that. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see that in Melbourne very soon. Yeah, cool. Do you see it as challenging living waste-free at home? Do you think that there are big challenges for people? Um, I think it's a lot easier today than what it is. And I think that there's a lot of um, companies that are now trying really hard to find alternatives. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of recommend if you look at, like if the government stepped away tomorrow from the recycling and forcing companies to recycle or forcing councils to recycle, plastic would go straight to landfill Um Glass would probably not even be crushed. It would probably just get sent straight to landfill. Um, but aluminium would always be recovered because if you look at like an aluminium can, it's 12 times more expensive to make an aluminium can out of virgin material. It's 12 hmm. times cheaper to make it out of a can. So to me, like why aren't we, why aren't we using aluminium more often? You know, like we, I did some consulting to Qantas about 10 years ago and uh, I advocated that all wine and every beverage go into an aluminium can for weight reduction especially. And they estimated back then that it was going to save the $1.6 million per annum in fuel just by carrying oh, less weight. Because it's lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, you know, it was also, well, wherever you go, you can go anywhere in the world that plane can land. That aluminium is of high value. There's mm. recycling plants in every city. So why not land with something that is valuable rather than land with something that needs to be burned in a place like Singapore or needs to go to a waste to energy plant or needs to be deep buried in if you land in, you know, um, the US somewhere. So, you know, I think a lot of the solutions exist. I just don't think that people actually think about the differences in the materials and what, what that has, you know. And it's not a more costly thing either. Like it costs Coca-Cola less to buy an aluminium can as a raw product than it does to buy a plastic bottle. But it cost them ten times more to recycle that plastic bottle back into a plastic bottle. So you know, we really <laughs> there's some simple solutions to a lot of this stuff. It's interesting in our industry in in architecture because there's a lot of stigma around um, aluminium because it's such high energy to produce initially. Um, so it would be very interesting to hear your thoughts on um, using aluminium over say timber as a construction material in you know in say window frames um just weighing up you know the differences between those two well i mean in bushfire scenarios i wouldn't recommend aluminium of course because you know although there's fire rated aluminium windows and doors i don't think you'd want to go through a flame like a bush bushfire scenario like king lake with an aluminium window frame um because they just melt um, so I, I, I love steel frame windows um, because I think that they hold up well in bushfire situations. They last. Um, you know, I, I love steel full stop because it's such an easy material to recover as well. It's easy to separate. Um, even if you throw steel into your rubbish bin and um, when that gets tracked into landfill, it still gets recovered. There's actual magnets on the, on the equipment. So you know, I'm a huge advocate for steel. Um, and you know, aluminium can be, you know, um, still not, not as easily as aluminium, but aluminium can be recycled a million times without losing any quality. So from that perspective, I think that's one of the reasons why the car industry and Tesla are so interested in that material 
um, because yeah, it is an ultimate. It's the ultimate um, reusable circular material. How can people living in apartments reduce their waste? Um, eating seasonally, um, buying, um, cooking from scratch, and yeah, the, those two things will probably do more than anything. Hook, uh, you know, especially if you live in Melbourne, you can uh, buy your shopping through a, a company like Return and Marketplace, where your stuff gets picked up once a week, and so it could be a vessel for peanut butter or, or you know, lollies, whatever it is. Um, so there's some really good ways to do that, and but I think going shopping and cooking from scratch and making food from scratch is a fantastic way to reduce your impact and eating seasonally. You know, uh, uh, something grown out of season takes a lot more energy and a lot of chemicals usually to produce. Something that's in season takes obviously a lot less energy um, because it naturally grows in that season. So think about the seasons, think about um, where it's grown and those those simple simple things can massively reduce your effect. Let's talk a bit about Future Food System. It's a self-sufficient house built at Federation Square in Melbourne, and it's a kind of culmination of the work that you've done in the hospitality sector to to show and, and build on those ideas in a residential setting. What would I see and feel walking into the foods, Future Food System greenhouse? Um, well, first, first of all, it's an unusual place to to be in when it was being built. So the builders that helped me build it said that they'd never been on a building site like that before because there was no, there were no smells. You don't have glues. I, I, I um, build the way that I would farm organically. So if anything is toxic, I don't use it. If anything is, um, uh, yeah, it causes harm or will somehow contaminate the indoor air, I would not use it. So it was the pr- predominantly made from steel and um, compressed straw. And we actually embedded the compressed straw with charcoal. So we cut down. Um, we, there's no FSC timber in the building either. So I don't. I'm not a huge advocate for Forest Stewardship Council. I think it's probably the most destructive thing on earth, uh, to be honest. So um, about 20 years ago, I was in the Amazon and and saw logs being stamped with FSC stamp, and I thought, hang on, these logs are clearly from the Amazon rainforest. What is going on here? And it opened up a can of worms for me, realizing you know, how the loss of biodiverse forests and then being replaced with monoculture, more profitable monoculture forests is one of the most destructive things on earth. So I was really determined to to design FSC out of this project. So I used agroforestry timber. So I work with um, the Stewart family and uh, Rowan Reed and um, um, a great uh, Aramore Furniture, a great business in Ballarat, a solar-powered, huge solar-powered factory we cut uh, some macrocarpa and some sugar gums, cured them in a solar-powered kiln, uh, collected the sawdust from the process. That's what the kitchen and all the lining and everything is made from. And then we pyrolysized the sawdust. Um, it's pyrolysis is, is burning something in the absence of oxygen. And we created around 3,000 cubic meters of um, charcoal from all the sawdust that was collected. And we put a ton into the soil and we put 300 kilos I- into the Jura panel. And the idea being that the walls will then become sponges for airborne pollution and toxins and constantly filter the air. Um, so there's ve- it doesn't smell like a new house, that's for sure, but it doesn't smell at all. If anything, you'll smell the aquaponic systems or the mushrooms or um, you know the, the, uh, the many different living things. There's hundreds of different plants growing in and on the building. And so I kind of 
wanted to show that, you know, our homes could be the most biodiverse places on earth. And that's really what the future food system is. And it's also reverse engineered. So the soil on the roof is actually what stops the building from blowing away. There's no foundation. It's just sitting on some blocks. And um, there's 34 ton of soil on the roof that the engineer told me to put on. He actually calculated how much soil we needed on the roof to stop the building from blowing away. So it's kind of reverse engineered. And that idea came about because lots of friends were really inspired by my work and then um, building and then said, but we can't afford to put a rooftop garden on. That was because it was usually an afterthought and then the engineer would you know, require the building to be um, additional beams and, and extra strength and, you know, the waterproofing or whatever it wasn't designed. So I thought, well, why don't we design a building from scratch? And so this is my fifth building that I, no, sixth building that I've designed like this. Um, and it means that you can put some of that money that you would ordinary, ordinarily put into a foundation into your rooftop garden and make it productive at the same time. How uh, cost effective is it to build like that? Um, well, the King Lake House, I mean, that's 2014 now, but that was completely off-grid and the budget for that was 605000 Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like there's a lot of um, R&D in future food systems, so it's a bit of a complicated, um, it's very complicated to say what that, you know, there was at least $150,000 worth of R&D in it. So, you know, a house like Feds, like the one at Fed Square would be in the order of 650000 the footprint is 87 square meters, but the usable space is 128 square meters. Okay, cool. But that includes the batteries and, you know, yeah, generator and all that. And, and you know, there's a pool that acts as a fire. There's lots of elements in that building, obviously, that are additional. Could you tell me a little bit about the different types of food and food groups in the house and how you went about designing the that selection so that it ensured a balanced diet? Yeah, so one of my big inspirations is a book called uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, and that was really the inspiration for the first greenhouse back in 2008, as well as all my past projects, including brothel. Um, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration was written by Dr. Weston A. Price, who was one of the founders of the American Dental Association. And in the late 1910s, there was a lot of concern in the US around narrowing of jaws and uh, the crowding of teeth, but also tooth decay. One in two teeth in the US were affected with a tooth cavity. So you can imagine it was a huge issue. At the same time, the Geographical Society were coming back with pictures of the Hudsa and the Australian Aboriginals and uh, the Eskimos in Alaska and you know indigenous cultures that seem to have wide jaws, perfect, perfect facial structure, and also healthy teeth. So... Western Price convinced the American Dental Association to fund a research trip going to places where the food hadn't changed for at least a 1,000 years and to analyze the diet, but not only that, to actually um, check the health of the people that lived this way. And the first trip was in 1924, and the last – it was so much information from that first trip. They actually did it 10 years in a row. The last trip was in 1934. And the information was uh, incredible. Like it's a trip that you could no longer do. You know, most almost everyone is now getting some kind of Western food and, you know, those traditional diets no longer exist. But um, what they found in summary, he said, America is overfed and undernourished. And he wrote that in 1934. And he, like he found a group, there's an Australian Aboriginal on the cover of the book. And the reason for that is he found one group, uh, one population, a group of over 300 living on the 
border of Queensland and New South Wales, who in that whole group, he couldn't find one tooth cavity. And you can imagine in America, one in two teeth were affected. Like the Hudson had one in 250, the Eskimos in Alaska, one in 200. But there was not one tooth cavity in the whole group. They became obsessed with their diet and they had 17 times more zinc, uh, up to 15 times more magnesium. But it was really the, the food, what they did to the food and the, you know, what they, how they um, cooked the food. Um, there were lots of little different ways that people, traditional cultures, ate food and, and uh, paired foods. And so that became really mind-blowing to me and it made me realize that we can easily nourish ourselves with an urban food system if we actually try and mimic what Australia's fir- the first Australians ate. And, you know, they had over 400 different foods and um, huge complexity but also much higher in fiber. And, um, you know, a lot of the ideas at Future Food System have come out of that book. And, you know, I'll give you one example, like uh, mushrooms that are grown in the house on waste. Um, they are then dried in the sun. That came about because in Siberia they couldn't understand why the vitamin D levels in people living in the middle of winter there were really high and they realized it was because they sun-dried mushrooms in autumn which made them massive sponges for vitamin D and that's what they ate throughout the winter. Um, Another example is um, the eating of insects, especially in Africa and Australian Aboriginals and insects were loaded with vitamin D and and it made them, made, you know, and not only vitamin D, but assimilates that they were assimilating vitamin K2 and, you know, so things that were eating fast growing green leaves like crickets and that were highly prized by Australian Aboriginals. And it was um, what Western Price called the magical X factor that all these cultures, no matter where they were, had. It was a fat soluble vitamin that was really high and it was almost uh, non existent in the American diet. And it wasn't until 1974 that Harvard University worked out that it was vitamin K2 that Western Price had discovered, which um, is a fat-soluble vitamin that is um, particularly high in um, animals that have access to fast-growing green leaves. And if you look at like um, gorillas, for example, were you know being put in zoos back in those days, they were all dying. And it was assumed, well, we're giving them lots of green leaves. Why are they dying? They've got plenty of food, but it wasn't until later that they realized that up to 15% of their daily diet was actually insects and that's how mm, they got their mm. vitamin K2. Mm, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we've got crickets and, of course, when you've got lots of – like we've got lots of rhubarb growing underneath the apple trees and the barrels and so you've got lots of access to lush green leaves that, you know, the crickets just devour. And then we've got like an aquaponic system with trout. The trout tend to eat the insects off the top, skim the insects off the top. Because they've got access to sunlight, um, they're much higher in vitamin D than what, say, the barramundi that we had downstairs were because they had no access to to uh, sunlight. Snails is another great one. You know, snails will eat the luscious, greenest leaves usually, which makes them a really valuable source of um, those kind of vitamins and minerals that are really lacking in our diet today. So that 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 is you know where i get most of most of my most of my inspiration and most of my ideas actually come from books that were written in that period between 19 1890 and uh 1930 i find that was especially 1920 to 1930 was a really uh, amazing time for discoveries and and uh and and um 
new ideas and and you know I often go to old bookstores and try and find stuff written in those those times. Could you tell me a little bit about the fungus wall, what it looks like and how the how the mushrooms grow, what they what they grow in? Yeah, so that idea came about um, back in 2015 when Batch Espresso and Carlisle Street, uh, everybody was having uh, smashed avocado on toast with feta and uh, every cafe in Melbourne had about 2,500 buckets sitting at the back. Not you know, No one knew what to do with them. So Marie, who owned the cafe, said, you're the zero waste guy, can't you come up with something for these buckets? So I got them to start knocking coffee grounds into the buckets. And once a week when I did the flowers, I would take the buckets home and put them in a microwave for 30 seconds and then uh, the following day when they'd cooled down, I would uh, inoculate them. So I'd, I'd put them in a microwave to kill off any competition. Anyone that knows, you know, the coffee grounds get covered in that pink, you know, fungal mold if you leave it out for sure, long enough. they do, yes. Yeah, you know, I remember. When we extract coffee, we re- yeah, we really only extract flavor. We don't really extract any nutrients. So it's really nutrient-dense. And so any airborne fungus just lands on there and just goes crazy. So you need to knock off any competition and then uh, you get like a little grain of rice inoculated um, spores that can start you know I, I did it initially with pink mushrooms which were the easiest to grow and that's really where that idea came from and and um, then I started experimenting with cardboard and uh, egg cartons and the stalks of corn and I realized that our recycling bins are just full of everything that we could be using to grow mushrooms. And what the mushrooms, you know, obviously the mushrooms are great because they're a food crop that we can then use. But for me, that mushroom more is more about transforming those materials into an incredible compost for the soil. So one of the things that you'll notice when you grow your own food is that the soil level constantly drops, right? Because all the microbiology in the soil eat up all the elements and and reduce it down. Like you can feed worms a cubic meter of, of, of compost and you'll end up with like two buckets at the end, you know, because they just break it down into the most minute, uh, um, finest material. And so one of the things you need to do when you grow food, especially in pots and in barrels and, and wicking beds, is you constantly need to top up the soil. And so using mushroom compost, once mycelium has, has transformed that material, Plants just go crazy on it, and uh, so do worms. So that's a great way of of keeping, you know, your recycling bin um, empty and your soil bins topped up, and at the same time you get some great mushrooms. So it's relatively easy to do it. Could I do it at home? It is actually. I mean, you could. You could. Uh, it's pretty hard to fuck it up, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> ironically, the most valuable mushroom we found the most valuable mushroom is actually the one that. Um, the lion's mane, which is what a lot of people are taking dehydrated lion's mane for cognitive uh, improvement and uh, and brain health and, you know, to stimulate the brain. We've actually found that to be the easiest. So, you know, when Matt and Joe aren't in the house or, you know, you really get a sense of that house behaves like an ecosystem. If there's no one living there, it's a disaster. So we've lost fish because, you know, the – Someone, because it's an off-grid house, we have to have an emergency stop button at all the exits. Someone will walk up to the house and hit that button and suddenly the fish are off, you know, and by the time we realize it's too late, you know. So it really is an ecosystem that needs humans to inhabit it. It also means that there's a lot more steam for the mushrooms from the shower and the hot water service works more and so we get more water condensate from the hot water service. So, you know, it's – it's um, 
yeah, it's not that hard. Um, and I don't know, is it true that we apparently spend three to four hours on social media a day now on average in the Western world? And if that's the truth, then I would imagine that Joe and Matt would agree that it would be less than 45 minutes a day to maintain all of the systems in the house if you regularly did them. That includes watering the, the grow bed in, in the bedroom and um, making sure that you prune stuff back and plant stuff and feed the fish and all those elements are actually, yeah, not that time-consuming really. Could you tell me a little bit more about the aquaponics and how they work? Yeah, so something that I'm really passionate about is fish and um, it's it's like the oceans are being depleted now so quickly. It's just, it's crazy that we're actually, you know, you go into a supermarket and the canned tuna aisle is still, you know, 25 meters long and you just wonder, well, tuna are in, almost endangered now. We've pretty much fished them all out and there's actually a really long history of, the invention of canning, destroying fish populations all over the world, including here in Australia. You know, we've got Benalla where we pulled out 140,000 tonnes of cod in one year when we started canning it here in Australia. You know, you, can, you can't imagine how many fish we've pulled out of our rivers and oceans over the last 150 years. And so it's obvious that you know, we're not going to stop people eating fish and I think that fish are actually, when you consider them as part of an ecosystem, they're actually really, really valuable and we need, I need those fish in the greenhouse in future food system because they generate a nutrient source that plants go crazy for. You know, they're part of the ecosystem and they actually coat the food. So when we have salads and those sorts of things from the aquaponic system, you get a microbiology that is that you're not going to get any other way. So I'm a big believer that we can transition from the current destructive food system to a really um, well a system that's positive in every way. And it's really disheartening to know that I think we pulled 80 million tons of fish out of the ocean last year, 86 million tons, I think it is. I mean, it, you can't even comprehend that volume of fish being pulled out of the ocean, but 45% of that fish was ground up and turned into fish food for fish farms. So, so many of us are actually buying farmed fish because we think it's more sustainable and didn't come out of the ocean, but it's far from su sustainable if you need three kilos of wild fish to produce one kilo of farm fish. And so, like timber, it's an industry that is just... Um, it's really difficult to get to get an understanding of how, you know, it, it's it's just ridiculous, really. When you start digging, the more you dig, the more you find, and the more you realise that it's just so far from being sustainable. So, you know, urban aquaponic systems have, I believe, a huge potential to replace those systems. And you know, the Chinese have been doing it for six thousand years. Aquaponics, we've been doing it for eight thousand years in Australia. You know, uh, fish farming sustainably. And we've got a huge waste stream. We bury so many tons of food waste and organic material that would be that can be transformed by worms and by insects into the most amazing fish food. And in return, we can then use the nutrients that the fish generate to grow amazing food. And so to me, if we start thinking holistically and in a circular way, we can have more than enough fish than we can possibly eat and, and not rely on ocean harvested fish. And I think our buildings are a, if you look at the Eureka Tower, there's 800,000 litres of water 
that's uh, at the top of the Eureka Tower to stop the building from swaying. You know, if you go to New York or Brooklyn, you'll see all the water tanks for bush for fire, and those tanks could all be modified and designed to be amazing aquaponic systems. So there's not a lot that we need to change. We just need to, I suppose, celebrate that idea. And the more people that do it, the more technology goes into it and the more people will realize. Um, a system that takes three square meters of space can produce 100 to 150 yabbies a year and up to 100 trout a year and more lettuce and cucumbers and tomatoes than you can possibly eat. That's three square meters. Yeah, it's very exciting. My favorite thing is actually sitting in the house and hearing the whole system work. Mm. Yeah, it's like you've got a waterfall in your house. And um, I was my, my daughter took some of her friends to the house on the weekend and two boys that were 13, uh, 14, they were both 14, they spent, I'm not kidding, two hours mucking around with the fish system. They just they fed them and they were playing with it and – I just found it fascinating. Over the course of your career, you've managed to bring a number of key projects to fruition, despite the fact that projects like this are quite hard to develop and bring to life because, you know, there's lots of challenges around budget, you know, statutory controls, a range of things. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of the challenges were for Future Food System. First of all, um, it was understood that I didn't need to get a proper planning approval for a house and you know it wasn't meant to be there for that long so we thought great you know because federation square has its own planning controls mm. and that it's it's unique in that way because it's there you know to try and facilitate as many events as possible i don't know they do something like three thousand activations events or something a year on normally on average but then we quickly realized after we started building that we did need a, a building permit and okay. a planning, okay. a planning permit, not but a building permit. We did need. So we initially thought that we just needed engineering approval. So we had the building engineered, and and then yeah, we needed the building permit process, which was almost impossible to find a building surveyor that would take that project on, and um, that was incredibly stressful because obviously we couldn't occupy the building or do anything with the building unless we had a building permit. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, we did find someone, but it took us about 15, and I had help from Breathe Architecture, especially Bonnie, and um, every single building surveyor, I think we went through 15, maybe 16, and ultimately, through another friend, we actually found someone that did sign off on the building, but um, it was it was complex. And there's things like, you know, the, the shipping container is 2.8 meters above the ground, but we still needed a fence, a pool fence around it. And I mean, there's some ridiculous stuff that we needed to do that I refused to do. Um, but yeah, that was stressful. The other stressful thing was that we started uh, confidently knowing that we had sponsors on board. I'm not going to name the sponsors that we had, but they were big Australian companies that had agreed to back the project and sponsor the project. And of course, we started uh, the build, you know, in the middle of COVID. Uh, it was during that time that we were allowed to work on site. So we started five days before the whole state was locked down. And because we had started the project, we were able to continue. But in that first four week period, my sponsors all pulled out. And it was, that was incredibly stressful as well because I knew it was. You know, it's a costly exercise to build those public projects. Mm. And uh, suddenly I was without sponsors and 
and I was lucky that Mila um, uh, actually decided to back it better and more and um, and back the project. So they replaced one of my sponsors, which is fantastic. But it was still an incredibly stressful period and also not knowing when you could open, not knowing if you could open. Matt sure. and Joe yeah. lifted. Matt Stone and Joe Barrett had left their jobs and, and uh, yeah, it became, you know, it, it definitely wasn't the most complex project I've ever done. And obviously like building at Circular Quay in Sydney or building on the other side of Fed Square on, on Flinders Street, much more complex, uh, a lot more issues, much bigger buildings. But for me, this was definitely the most stressful project I've ever done. It seems a particular strength of your work is your ability to connect with people and collaborate on projects like this and also understand how the work of other makers, artists, entrepreneurs fit into your concept. What's the key to collaborating with with all these people and how, how critical is it to collaborate for your work? Well, my belief is that culture, if you don't, in, in a society, you don't respect others and you don't respect elders and you don't respect other people's craft then you don't have culture so culture exists because of a mutual respect for what others do and i think that we underestimate especially in australia how much knowledge and skill we have and it's it's especially uh um you know i i appreciate it so i seek it and i look for it it could be the way that somebody does an electrical uh uh, install something electrically or it could be as simple as re- the way somebody recycles something or somebody has come up with a material or and I often find that that yeah there are so many amazing people doing amazing things but they're rarely uh, I suppose uh, appreciated or celebrated and in my work I make a big deal out of making sure that everyone that's involved is respected is appreciated could be the guy that grows a straw I mean you know, Frank, who grew the straw that went into the jury panel, I, you know, had him all over my Instagram and his relatives were all texting. He wasn't on Instagram. He goes, what's this Instagram business? You know, <laughs> you know, why shouldn't we celebrate somebody that farms wheat organically and does a bloody great job and, you know, um, supplies jury panel? And the guy that's been working at jury panel for over 50, I think it was 58 years, continuously worked at jury panel for 58 years. You know, I put him in my social media because I think that that's the glue that makes, that bonds all of us together and makes, you know, we I, I, whether it's somebody that cleans the rubbish bins at Fed Square and has been there for 20 years, you know. Um, I don't know. That's, that's really what makes us who we are and that is really what culture is and that we need to celebrate that. And I think that Australia doesn't do a very good job of, um, I think we, we put ourselves down, every single one of us. You know, we always think that we don't do enough and that other countries do it better and that we um, – and, and I, I see the opposite is true. I think that, that Europe does a fantastic job of greenwashing what they do. But if you actually dig down and see what goes on in many instances, you realize that there's a lot of greenwashing, a lot of, a lot of hype about what they do. But are they really that sustainable? Well, every single person in Australia would probably say, ah, oh, Sweden or the Netherlands or Denmark or Germany are much more sustainable than we are. But I, I think that that's actually deliberate, a deliberate, uh, 
yeah, it's it's a good marketing campaign, I suppose you could say. I think that Australians deep down are innovative, want to do the right thing. It's the reason why we've got more houses covered in solar than any other country in the world. It didn't make financial sense, but we we you know, I think deep down most of us want to do the right thing and and I think we are very quick adopters of new technology and we um, because of our multicultural heritage as well and you know that that um, I, yeah that ability to just pivot and go right we need to fix this or we can make this or and there's yeah there's so many great innovators and that's what I love about all the projects that I've done is you end up meeting these people and you know like there's a documentary being made about this project that actually today we did the final filming um, and um, they've been following the project for two and a half years but it's like the guy that lives off grid in castle in castle maine with batteries that came out of a world war ii submarine you know <laughs> amazing people there's they're everywhere and i think it's the same thing as what i learned in art you know it's about keeping your eyes open and being aware that people like this are everywhere and we just need yeah. to and sometimes it just starts with a conversation or sometimes it just means like i want to have a 100% recycled tile or i want to have uh, recyclable electrical wiring because my mate that's his business is recycling demolition waste and and all what do we do with the plastic that surrounds the electrical cables you know so it's it's complex but it's actually not all this stuff is pretty basic you know to me do you try and work with local people i love working with local people and yeah so yeah and and Again, you know, I think we don't realize how much amazing, how many specialized manufacturers of different things there are and there's there's a lot that we don't know. And, I, again, I think it's because Australia doesn't really celebrate those stories and um, I think we need to be better at being a bit more proud of what we do and what we make. And, you know, there were very few cities in the world that made a car from scratch. Uh, I think there's only five cities in the world, I believe, um, or five countries in the world that did it and we did it. But a lot of those companies that have now, um, clo- you know, stopped making cars or stopped making parts of cars have now making all sorts of other things. And um, out of that came a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas and new technology and new um, methods. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised by what I find. And I feel like I've money scratching the surface, really. I'm interested in the the audience that you're that you're speaking to with um, with some of the ideas that you have and and with Future Food Systems and your other projects. And I was thinking a, a way we could split up that audience, you know. And there's probably a lot of ways, but one of the ways that might be helpful is to think about it as design industry business owners and entrepreneurs and general public. I wondered what specific messages or experiences you'd like those three groups to have when they walk away from something like Future Food System. But one of my favourite memories and thing, thing I'm most proud of, which wasn't a deliberate uh, thing that I did, but in the greenhouse, I remember sitting in the greenhouse in Perth about a week after we opened and there was a round, big round table and the round table had all these wheat farmers that were in their 70s and then there was these young kids that, in their school uniform that all came in on skateboards. And there was, if you look throughout the room, 
the demographic was unlike any other restaurant you could ever imagine. Like cool kids were hanging out, young kids thought it was the coolest thing in the world, but so did the 70 plus year old wheat farmers and so did the you know the hippies that were riding around on their bikes collecting organic waste from restaurants and it's very unusual to have a, a, a venue that appeals to so many different people for, and especially different age groups and I think that that's because there's so many elements that speak to and, and we go back to design you know at the start one of, your, one of the first questions you asked me was about creativity I think if something isn't visually appealing, it's never going to work, right? You've got to want to love it. You've got to look at it and go. And I, and I also think that um, in design, you don't want it to be instantly beautiful because I think if something is instantly beautiful, then it actually quickly fades and you stop loving it very quickly. You know, there's a very deliberate I, – I, I love that that kind of robust – I never really design anything to be aesthetically pleasing. It's more, number one, is it practical? Uh, do the materials age well? Um, you know, will it be beautiful in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? Um, and can it be recycled? Is it sustainable? That sort of thing. But my, I deliberately designed, it's almost like that Mad Max post-apocalyptic kind of thing. You know, the building at Fed Square, there's nothing really there that is an aesthetic thing it's just that's the way that the, the design is very deliberate you know the the as a modular skeleton it was designed so that the bedroom skeleton the bedroom frame fits inside the main living frame and then the three frames that have the hold the stairwell fit inside the bedroom frame so it was designed to go on one truck and the way that it's stacked up is actually to maximize the sun exposure to the rooftops like a terrace in bali let's say so it the design is really, and the reason why it can't leave is, is that that makes the most of that footprint and then keeps you dry as you're walking into the front door. You know, those, th- there's not a lot there that is designed to be aesthetic, if that makes sense. So I totally didn't answer your question. Then, did I? <laughs> no, that's all good. That's all good. Um, do you imagine that a certain type of um, visitor to one of these venues will go away and develop some of these ideas and and implement them in a way that would uh, achieve some sort of systemic change? Or is it more about just the general public being aware and starting to adopt these practices in their, in their day-to-day lives? It's a bit of everything, but I know that in uh, when I still had Silo, there was a, a lady that came with her son and it would have been, I suppose, five or six years after. So he would have been in grade six when this boy came on a tour. I can't remember his name, but we actually still have his gift that they made um, hanging here. But he had got into, I think it was Harvard or one of the one of the American colleges, Stanford, I can't remember, based on, and he wanted to thank me personally because a tour when he was a student at the greenhouse inspired him to focus on sustainability and sustainable systems and that ended up you know, he became obsessed and ended up getting him into this college. So I don't know, the the way that best way I describe it is that I want my design to look ridiculous in 10 years' time. I want I want to be surrounded by ideas that are 10 times better. And, you know, like I really I'm a big believer in that pebble in a pond idea that you create the ripple effect and and I think that having living, breathing physical example of something, walking in, being immersed in something and having every sense touch is so powerful that it stays with you and um 
you know, that's why I, I love building and doing, you know, projects, whether it's an art installation or whether it's a project like Future Food System, because I think an immersive experience like that really resonates with people. And, and you know, none of the ideas are my ideas, really. They're just a whole bunch of ideas stolen from here, there and everywhere. But what makes it unique is that they're all in one space. And I think that they give people optimism and inspire them to think, oh, wow, we can do it differently. You can actually, you know, generate enough food where you live. And and I really genuinely believe that this is an alternative and a sustainable, practical alternative that I really hope becomes mainstream. You know, it's not a, for me, it's not pie in the sky. I just think this makes so much more sense than, you know, growing something 5,000 kilometres away from Melbourne. You know, and then, and then there's the other thing, like, um, the, the happiness, especially if you spend time, say, doing the Stephanie Alexander kitchen garden at schools, that planting something, harvesting something, pulling it out of the ground, washing it, cooking it, eating it, it's, it has a transformative effect on, on people, especially young kids. And it just the smells, the flavors, the textures, the whole process, the fact that nature yields this, um, why can't we all have that in our lives all the time? Because it's just so satisfying and it's just some very simple changes that we need to make to the way we design our infrastructure, our buildings. There's no reason why our cities can't be our food bowls and that, like how much better would our cities be to live in and we wouldn't need garbage trucks anymore. We wouldn't need to worry about waste because all those systems would be integrated into our food system. And can you imagine the the uh, there's just the multiple benefits to our well-being, to the way we feel, to the air that we breathe and the soils will cleanse the air and how much cooler our cities would be and, you know, we'd live in an ecosystem and have the, you know, the, the live music and the great restaurants and all the other things that we love about cities but also just be able to employ a million people that are currently underemployed or looking for something to do growing food for the others that don't maybe want to spend as much time growing food. There's something really important about growing food and raising livestock. I think it helps people to develop empathy for that process and for plants and animals. Um, And it gives an understanding into this process that unfortunately we're quite separated from in contemporary society. But I think there's a whole bunch of other positive um connections that it's able to help you to make so could you talk a little bit about those well you you waste less because you understand the process of what you've done to get to that point but it connects you you suddenly start looking at is it going to rain uh is it going to get hot Mm. is it windy or i need to i need to tie up my whatever it is tomatoes because the wind it's so windy or um and we're kind of heading down that path Anyway, you know, like with energy, our houses are now being set up in ways that, you know, dishwashers go on in the middle of the day when, you know, we've got a surplus when we're dumping energy or, you know, you can now set things like washing machines and dryers to go on when you've got surplus energy and, and, you know, your heat pump heats up more water when, well, I mean, that to me, that's all the same thing. But I, I just can imagine a city like Melbourne just being so much nicer to live in. And then suddenly we start rethinking everything. And and to me, I look at a city like Melbourne and I just see so much opportunity 
you know, the skins of building could be, uh, you know, so much more. They could be productive. They could be covered in life. Uh, a building like the Rialto Tower in Melbourne, you know, when it's fully occupied, say pre-COVID, was pumping out half a million litres of grey water a day. You know, you've got one and a half hectares of facade that faces north on that building. You could at least get 60 or 70 kilos of tomatoes per annum from every square metre of that facade. If we start thinking that way, then suddenly that building would be fully occupied because everyone would want to be in it. Because when you look out at the, you know, through the window, you see somebody picking cucumbers or tomatoes or lettuce or, and there's a second skin, it would cool the building. So you wouldn't use as much energy to, you know, most of the energy that's used for the Rialto is to cool it because there's all this constant sun, you know, heating that building up, even in the middle of winter. And so suddenly, you know, by putting a second skin on that building and having crops growing, you've totally changed. It's such a simple thing to do. What's the key to staying creative? How do you keep the ideas coming? I think that um, one of the one of the problems that a lot of creatives that I know have is they spend too much time on a computer. And I, I, I personally, I think you need to just get your hands dirty and build stuff and do stuff. And if you do stuff. It just it, it's a it's better for the human creative process, I believe. I think you know getting constantly stuck on a keyboard trying to figure stuff out is not the way that um, it, it's not the best way to stimulate. Obviously, I need to do that too. You know, we all need to do that in our current world. But there's nothing like physically building something, doing something, welding something, making something, you know, planting something getting your hands dirty, it, it just stimulates so many more senses. And um, I think it's much better for the creative process. So a lot of people that have like, it could be friends that are writing a book or, or writer's block or whatever, just, like, just get out, just do something, you know, just um, get physical and actually build something, create something. Or And, um, you know, we, we were filming today and there was a guy that, that the sound guy who was saying, you know, I just – You've because I've built this house myself, and it's like I just can't imagine having the confidence to build my own house. I really believe that everyone should build a house. I think every architect should spend a you know a year on a building site. I did you just it changes you because you 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 respect what people do, you respect people's roles, and and you know, if you grow if you sell food, you should work on a farm that grows food if you. Uh, in a restaurant, you know, working as a waiter or as a chef, I think it's really important to. Uh, the, the biggest problem is we're all so siloed now. We're all so specialized, and that needs to change because that's not how anything else in nature works. Now, everything is connected, but we, you know, if anything, we're becoming more and more specialized, and that, I think that's a mistake. And look, I'm not specialized at anything. I still haven't worked out how to do anything properly. I just have a crack at everything. And, <laughs> you know, and, and that, and, and I'm not scared to fail. I think that that is the biggest. Like we're so scared to fuck up, and you know, look, and, and of course, if you do fail, sometimes it hurts and costs a shitload of money. But um, I think that the fear of failing is is the biggest um, stumbling block to creativity. You just got to have a go, because that's where the juicy bits are. Where you, when you fail, that's where that's where 
the most memorable moments are, that's where you just go, fuck, I ended up because of that mistake working that out or, you know, it sends you down a path that you don't ever expect to be down and it leads you to places that um, are so much more stimulating. I couldn't agree more. Yost, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Future Food System, check out their webpage at www.futurefoodsystem.com. They've also got a great Instagram at Future Food System. If you'd like to keep track of Yoast and his day-to-day endeavours to reduce waste, I'd also suggest checking out his Instagram at Yoastbucker. That's J-O-O-S-T-B-A-K-K-E-R. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegoodatdreamalab.com.au. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. And this podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. Catch you next time.